Over the course of the last few years, the BMJ, in partnership with the Health Foundation, has published a series of articles in our Quality Improvement series, which aims to give those new to improvement science a good grasp of how to think about changing things in healthcare. Then COVID-19 came along, and it seemed like all of healthcare was now aimed at just surviving in the face of the pandemic, and all sorts of quality improvement projects went out the window. But did they? I'm Kat Chatfield, and you'll probably recognise me from our wellbeing podcasts. In this episode, I'll be wearing my other editor hat, although inevitably, as you'll hear, wellbeing is linked to quality improvement as much as anything else. And really, this is all about how do we effectively make change in healthcare to benefit clinicians and patients. I'm delighted to be joined today by Will Warburton, who until recently was Director of Improvement at the Health Foundation. Can I get you to introduce yourself? Hi Kat, my name is Will. Uh, I'm Director of Improvement at the Health Foundation and I've had the pleasure of working on this series with BMJ over the past four years. Thank you. Thanks very much, Will. And so I think there's sort of loads of questions here, aren't there, about quality improvement and, and the pandemic. Um, And let's perhaps start with looking backwards. Um, You know, before the pandemic, we were discussing um, in these articles and and through your work, you know, how challenging it is to make improvements in care um, and what are some of the factors that that make that possible or the barriers to it. Um, And then all of a sudden we saw massive rapid change happening at at pace and at scale in the health system with COVID. and so to what extent do you think um, quality improvement approaches and methods were kind of being applied uh, and at pace and at scale during the pandemic? So quality improvement is seeking to try and bring some method and some order to chaos. And so in many ways, this has been one of its greatest tests. And I think that it's actually been in practice more than we might think, even if people don't know always or haven't been explicitly saying what they're doing is quality improvement. But effectively what people have been doing is rapidly coming up with new ideas about how to source PPE or how to move to nearly all total triage and remote consultation or how to completely reorganise the flow of patients in a hospital. So there's been rapid learning taking place, very fast cycles of change, people trying to understand whether those changes are making improvements or whether they're causing harms, and then adjusting and course correcting as they go. So in many ways, improvement has been absolutely embedded through the past two years in ways that it never has been before. And how successful do you think people have been in making those changes? Well, it's very interesting to ask people who've been doing the work about that. And what we've done is we've surveyed um, more than 200 Q members, Q is a community of people with improvement skills and experience about you know, um, what they've learned during the pandemic. And interestingly, around half of them said that have actually been using improvement methods and tools more in that time, which is kind of counterintuitive because actually you kind of think, well, you just had, you know, often hours to respond, let alone days or weeks. Um, so how have people managed to do that? Um, and I think that's through um, using the kind of skills improvers has, which include saying, you know, can we understand what's causing this change? Um, can we actually explicitly map out a process here and understand where the problems are? Can we use things like a Pareto principle to understand where we're getting our benefits from our work, given that our time's so constrained? 
Um, and um, can we use our measurement to try and work out what's what's working and for whom quickly? So it's not. This is not the sort of um, uh, leisured um, opportunity to take a day to bring everyone together um, to do sort of long term thinking and planning. This is the very real work of improvement on a day to day basis. Thanks, Will. And I think what you touched on there is partly one of the things that we were so keen to do with the series, which is to really um, be clear about what we mean when we're talking about improvement, which is, you know, to have this, it's really sort of this attitude um, and this approach, which is to sort of look at um, improving change in, in healthcare you know, through a series of different tools and not be wedded to one particular approach. But as you said, this kind of attitude and uh, habits of improvers, um, which is what we've been really keen to talk about. Uh, so it, it's almost amazing to see those transported into a real world situation, kind of um, writ large. Um, and interestingly, I think some of the things we were talking about in the series around kind of barriers and kind of organizational cultures and how you need to create a burning platform for change i mean the covid-19 pandemic certainly um created that clear mission and vision and that that sort of impetus incredibly rapidly in organizations clearly in the, the normal course of things there are dozens or hundreds of competing priorities within a system at any one time and part of the habits of an improver that we that we talk about is the influencing, the persuading, the getting a shared idea of a problem and the shared idea of a solution, and getting sufficient focus in the system to be able to bring all the resources to bear that are needed to tackle it. And COVID did cut right through that with both beneficial consequences in terms of responding to the immediate needs of social distancing or the immediate requirements of infection prevention control. It also, of course, had very significant unintended consequences in terms of what we're seeing now of the unmet need that was created, the wear on staff, which is extraordinary and remaining. Um, so yes, you know, the pandemic has provided a unifying and clarifying um, uh, means of harnessing energy, um, but that has come at great cost and not in the way that we would like. Um, and one of the major tasks now is to reorientate, to understand what has been beneficial, what to sustain and how, and what we need to um, change to make um, life more manageable, um, both for the workforce um, and, uh, and key benefits for patients where those exist. Absolutely. And so what role do you think quality improvement approaches can play in supporting kind of that recovery. I'm not going to say following the pandemic, but into the next stage of the pandemic. Well, um, I think that clearly the principles of improvement are going to be very valuable in the recovery. Um, so, you know, I've been talking with colleagues and we've been supporting work, for example, up in um, Northumbria, looking at this question around staff um, well-being supporting staff. And I do think this is the number one factor. If staff are not um, able to uh, uh, to have the, um, the ability to engage in this kind of work, then it can't happen. And it's clearly the number one priority. So for example, they've been developing their measurement and understanding of staff well-being so that the organisation can differentiate its response and do so rapidly by having much more easy to use tools to report staff 
surveys, which you know often in the NHS are once a year and somewhat after a horse has bolted, um, so that you can actually understand what's happening for different sections of the workforce and then put in place um, responses that can help rapidly. Um, so I think it's that kind of rapid learning and improvement cycle, um, minimising any additional um, uh, requirements in terms of data collection, and making that as easy to say and hard to do, um, but essential if people are going to engage. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, not already increase, not increasing the burden on an already extremely burdened workforce um, to, and adding to the problem. Um, so you talked there about sort of pulling together and you know having a sort of single focus with with mixed effects um but do you think there were other barriers to change that that were kind of removed or or the sort of context changed during the pandemic and what effect that had on people's ability to improve care around them so uh, one very interesting piece of learning from we studied innovation during the pandemic and what we saw is, is that there were some real enablers. So there was this, what we call top-down clarity and bottom-up agency. So um, interviewees that we spoke to um, said that there was an overarching kind of framework from the top and a goal from the top, but there was a lot of space in the how to be worked out locally. Um, so, um, and regulators actually, to speak up to regulators, um, for once, did provide some air cover for that. Um, there were changes around information governance. Um, uh, there was, you know, quick sanctioning of moves to video consultation and um, medical defence organisations issued guidance about, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, wording on clinical negligence. You know, the, the whole system did kick in very quickly to try and enable that change. So there is some learning from that to take, um, particularly, I think, this thing of trusting the front line to work out how. In a system as big and complex as the NHS, and it is the biggest and the most complex industry um, in the country, the idea that you can have the solution at the centre, the fact that that idea still is you know, tolerated, I find really remarkable. Um, and it is, I think, there are a lot of enlightened people at the top who realise their role is to set a framework, set a context and support that local innovation and change. But one very positive legacy of the pandemic could be that there is that recognition that it's the people closest to the problem who are most likely to be able to identify and put in place really absolutely and and all those lessons around making change in complex systems that that we saw in that piece by Jeffrey Braithwaite as well you mentioned kind of understanding what benefits have have accrued for patients um, and what we want to sort of continue with and what we might want to to stop doing after the pandemic and, and one of the things that I think is is hugely at the forefront of lots of clinicians minds is um, the sort of digital agenda mm. um, you know and we've had this as you said rapid move towards um, especially in primary care kind of you know a lot of remote provision you know and triage virtual first um, but we're seeing a lot of effects on um, patient access and um, patient satisfaction and, and provider satisfaction you know it, it has sort of changed the nature of the job in a very fundamental way um, so you know 
how can we sort of understand the impacts of that change um, and how do we kind of evaluate and move forward uh, with that agenda? Yeah, so you know, it's important to acknowledge that these technologies were like remote consultation technologies and, and so on were rolled out uh, with um, extraordinary and very impressive speed. Um, but necessarily because of that, some aspects of implementation that you'd normally expect, like user testing, customization, evaluation, were shortcut, and that's completely understandable. What that means is that you've had a quite an undifferentiated application of these technologies, and they are going to have tremendous value for some people some of the time, and they are not going to work at all for some people <laughs> some of the time. In fact, that just as you say, even their consequences are significantly negative. Now, what's been you know really a bit disheartening is is that it's fallen into this very binary discussion of the mode um, of um, the delivery of care, which is really missing the point entirely. Um, and I think going back to one of our um, articles in the series, which is um, Paul Battalion's piece on you know how health is created, it's created between the patient and their clinician and their clinical team, it's produced between them. And we need to start from that point and ask how do I how can we get this right together? What's the right way to deliver care for this individual? Um, and not fall into blanket um, uh, dichotomies about whether one mode or another mode is the right way to do things. So in terms of what improvement approaches can help with, is they can help with breaking that down. They can help with that evaluation. They can help with testing um, and doing that in a way that's systematic without being um, uh, 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 but operating at a pace that's needed, um, given that um, this is something that's here with us now. Thanks, Will. And just picking up on that point you made about implementation, I think one of the challenges that we had when we were looking at the series is there's often this kind of divide between quality improvement and implementation science, um, but which is a bit artificial a lot of the time. Um, but just sort of reflecting on, you know, for the clinician on the ground, um, when, you know, a political imperative gets handed down, how can they use what we know about implementation to sort of um, make that change happen in practice? So change that's not necessarily driven by the patients in front of them or by their own kind of recognition of what needs to happen, but a sort of mandated change. What what can clinicians do to sort of make that the best it can be for them and their patients? Well, I, I think that you know, change 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 that is driven from it from the outside is always up against it from the start. So it always has to be you know the positive thing is to try and reframe that as how can this be helpful um, for the people that we work with, for the people that we serve, for um, our organization for our context so that it's generated with a sense of okay this is something that can be useful and meaningful to us that people are going to want to participate in because without that we know from all sorts of evaluations of literature what we get is we get um, uh, sort of a, a, a show of compliance um, tick box um, kind of responses um, or trying to hit the target but missing the point. Um, so it's very important that these things are reframed 
um, and owned by the people who are going to deliver them. And that is the beauty of quality improvement is that it actually starts with the people and brings together the people, um, ideally um, including the patient, uh, who are going to have the solutions to a problem to work out what's important to them, what matters to them, and therefore where to focus. Now, again, that's quite that could be quite idealistic when you are receiving the number of um, directives that we know come through um, uh, from top. I think that um, my colleagues at this institute did some work in maternity care that has shown that over the last year there were maybe you know more than three a day um, coming through. I mean, that's almost you know even if you had the whole team set aside to have three meetings to deal with each one of them each day, we still couldn't get anywhere. The volume is extraordinary, and it creates these priority thickets locally where it's just overwhelming. So it is up to, unfortunately, to leaders locally and their teams, their organisations to prioritise, to make choices and to understand what where they're going to focus um, locally. Yeah, to understand their, lo- their local need and collaborate with patients. Absolutely. Okay, thanks, Will. Um, and then, you know, one of, one of these requirements is both kind of in terms of supporting the NHS and, and meeting patient needs is for people to work, collaborate effectively at the systems level. Um, and what is there anything that quality improvement has to say about how we might do that? So I, I think this is um, an incredibly positive development, um, uh, but all of our learning um, is that collaboration um, uh isn't uh, easy, often because of structural, organisational, professional differences. Um, Quality improvement can really help here um, because what it offers is it offers a method um, and a way and a space for people to come together around a problem. Um, So something we've done at the Foundation, Health Foundation, is support a programme called the Flow Coaching Academy, for example. Um, And this uses a methodology which was um, adapted from manufacturing, um, but brings everyone together into a space once a week. It's coached by a clinician and a manager, and they're supported there to do problem identification, to test changes, to measure those changes in a way that are appropriate to the test um, that you are doing, and to have everyone in the room And what they really do beautifully is they flatten hierarchy and they bring everyone together around the problem that they're trying to solve, which is how to improve care in this particular specialty. And so what that does is it removes a lot of the, um, uh, you know, a lot of of the work in in the NHS around collaboration is horribly dry, horribly distant. It's about structures, it's about governance, it's about financial flows. Now, I'm not saying those things aren't important. They create a very important context for improvement. But actually what improvement methods do is they provide the way in which this theory about integration gets translated into a conversation about who needs to do what, when, what difference can we make? How does this change that I'm making affect you? And how do I understand that and get feedback on that quickly? Because unintended consequences from these changes are always going to be rife. So I think it has a huge amount to offer. And so it goes far as saying it's almost essential to making integration a success. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the most popular articles in this series was was our one about understanding organisational culture. Um, you know, and I think the Flow Coaching Academy is such a, a great example of something that is a massive cultural change intervention, um, you know, and, and addresses some of those issues around tribalism and, and all of those other yeah. challenges. And it takes culture out of the clouds as well, because culture is another one of those words, which is just like, how do you change a culture? You know, well, actually, you do it through conversation. You do it through having a shared activity where you understand what's normal for each other and you actually have a way of changing those norms over time through those conversations. Um, so I know that's a fantastic piece. Of yeah, it's so one of my, I'm not allowed to have favourites. Probably can't say that. It's one of, one of my favourites. It's one of my favourites. Uh, I think you should be allowed favourites. And I, I think it's interesting as well, just, um, I mean, looking at the work the Health Foundation's been doing, supporting Northumbria with understanding staff wellbeing. I think the kind of attention that we've seen um, on wellbeing of staff in the pandemic is sort of a really interesting example of, of sort of rapid cultural change. Um where something that's been bubbling away for a long time has been brought to the fore um, and it's really heartening uh, to see that assume the kind of importance it deserves and the sort of um, central conversation about what our healthcare system's made of and they're made of people and they're made of conversations and you know ha- what does that mean for delivering care that's just a little soapbox <laughs> soapbox in there I feel like I should plug the well-being podcast as well um okay so that that's I think we've sort of looked forward quite a lot already in terms of, you know, what needs to happen going forward and how QI can help and support that. Um, And I find this conversation very heartening because I think so many of these problems look so intractable uh, and I think can seem very intractable, particularly to staff on the ground who are sort of exhausted and facing huge pressures. Um, What do you think are the kind of emerging improvement priorities for sort of at a kind of policy um, and sort of leadership level? So I think the responsibility of policymakers and organisational leaders is to create as supportive a context as possible for this kind of uh, change on the ground to happen. Um, And we know that many organisations that have been rated as outstanding by the CQC have developed cultures over many years and processes that support staff to have the time, the space, the skills to be able to improve the care that they deliver and improve the environment they work in. What can't happen is is that's just left to people. Um, I think one of the key insights from the series is that improvement can't just happen in isolation. And what happens then is you get lots of small-scale projects which can actually cause harm, um, which certainly at the very least waste precious time and energy. So organisations, leaders have a real responsibility to ensure that they prioritise and that they provide that kind of steer and support. It's a very, very hard thing to do in the current context. I completely um, understand that. Um, but in the longer term, um, then I think that's the that's 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 the main role, and it kind of inverts that pyramid. The idea that you know policy is the top of the pyramid and things come down, um, and it actually puts the patient and their clinical team and their wider community and support at the centre, and says we're here to um, support and serve the work that takes place there. 
And well, when you were talking there, you know, what I came to mind was some of the really big organisations and, you know, sort of trusts. But what does that mean on a small scale for, you know, primary care where, you know, an organisation might be 15 people? You know, what what can, yeah, what what's the sort of um, reflection there? So I mean, the challenges within much smaller organisations are, 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 are different in many ways, but they have some similarities. It's can you create that bit of space to prioritise together, to problem solve together, uh, to hear all voices and to try and understand whether the changes that you do try are an improvement um, and if not, how you can then adapt again. So those principles, I think, apply whether you're working in a team of 15 or whether you're working in an organisation of 15,000. Um, clearly, the sort of level of skill, uh, the resources that you have um, uh, to be able to make those changes are very, very different. Um, but I do think the principles can still apply. I'm, I'm at a risk of standing advertorial. I think, you know, the article on getting started in quality improvement, which does just kind of lay out all of those principles. Again, that, that's been a hugely popular one. And um, I think genuinely think it's a valuable resource for people to look at and go, you know, we feel like everything is overwhelming and intractable, but, you know, what are some of the things we could do to start to kind of, um, you know, nibble this elephant as it were? <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I make the link back to well-being that you were talking about? Mm. A very important component of well-being is feeling like you have some control over your environment. Mm. And um, and to be able to take part um, in uh, an improvement project, however small, is one way of stopping that overwhelm um, and actually being having an agency um, to be able to make changes. So well-being and improvement are inextricably um, interlinked. Um, and I, I, I think that actually, I know that you know it's very hard. There is this famous saying that we're too busy to improve and it's very hard to make the time. But if you make the time to do a simple process map and talk with colleagues about where the fault lines in that are, it may well be that you end up saving yourself days of work later and you've taken back control of that process um, and given yourself a little bit of sense of, control amidst the chaos. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in this situation, we talked about unhelpful binaries and dichotomies earlier, but, you know, in a situation where we're seeing in, in general practice where perhaps there's some political interest in setting up a kind of conflict between patients and, and practitioners, you know, having an improvement project to work on together um, where you can bring voices voices together and, and sort of solve mutual problems you know the problems of access or you know continue continue continuity of care are you know equally there for the practitioners as well as the as the patients um you know having uh, something that you can work on together is i think hugely beneficial um for sort of um overcoming some of those sort of um dynamics Thank you so much to Will Warburton. You'll have heard me dropping references to the series all through that discussion, and I'd really recommend having a read of some of them. They're all available for free on our website, and I've posted a link in the show notes. That's it for this episode, but I'll be back very soon with some more wellbeing, where we'll be hearing about how a creative output helped one healthcare worker after she experienced bullying at work. So subscribe to the BMJ on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Bye for now.